0: Welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with Mental Health America of Wisconsin. We are your co-hosts, Bridget
1: and Terry. Each week, through intimate, candid conversations with guests, we explore different perspectives on and experiences of depression. We keep it real because the illness is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression
0: tells you. We are not experts or therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and have interviewed hundreds of others who do as well. By sharing stories of lived experiences, we expose depression for the lying bully it is. Hey, Terry. Hello,
1: Bridget. So we're going to begin this episode with a thank you. For the past year and a half, Mental Health America of Wisconsin has fully funded this podcast and our small dedicated team, including Bridget and me, our audio engineer Steve, as well as Sarah, who manages our growing Facebook community and makes sure our social media posts go out every single day. That partnership comes to an end with this episode, which is the unfortunate nature of grant-funded opportunities. We're deeply grateful for their support, especially during the pandemic. And we're searching for new partnerships so we can continue this work. If you've got ideas or connections, we would love to hear them from you.
0: Today we continue our discussion with Michael Landsberg, founder of the charity Sick Not Weak. We also revisit an email that we received asking for advice on having a conversation with a loved one who from the outside appears to be a textbook case of depression but who is, and I'm quoting, proud of the fact that they don't need a doctor or medical help? Basically, the writer asks, how can we destigmatize antidepressants and have a helpful, uncondescending conversation with a loved one about the benefits of meds? So today, we're going to talk about that with our guest. For 18 years, he had a sports talk show on a Canadian equivalent of ESPN. He says, It had never occurred to him to use his platform to discuss and promote mental health until one day he asked a hockey player guest if it would be okay to bring up that the two of them experienced depression. He agreed, and they briefly addressed it in the segment. The response the station got, primarily from men who had been keeping their mental health struggles secret for fear of being considered weak, changed the course of his life and his work. Today, Michael Landsberg speaks openly and shamelessly about his depression, medication use, and the lessons he's learned from his and others' journeys. Here now is Michael again, giving his voice to depression.
1: So we're going to talk for the normal amount of time, but if you only have about 30 seconds, here's this episode in a nutshell.
2: Okay, here goes. My name is Michael Landsberg. I suffer from an illness called depression, also anxiety. I have have been taken down by this illness. I have been left understanding why people take their own lives. I have given up years of my life to this illness that I will never, ever get back. I have spent time where I knew that I was living but not alive. I understood suicide. I'm on medication today. I will be the rest of my life. But you know what? I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed, and most of all, I'm not weak.
1: For a number of reasons, including gender roles and stereotypes, no one wants to be perceived as weak.
2: The first day I spoke about this on television, the next day, the reaction I got, one of them was from a guy who said, you know, my dad, and this is how he wrote it, my dad lived his whole life, um, you know, since I was young, he drank every day, we never saw him smile, we knew that he was that he was sick but he said men do not go to psychiatrists or psychologists men suck it up and do their job and he said you know my dad died five years ago never got treatment he said and I'm my dad he said you know until I heard someone talking about this without shame and embarrassment and without sounding weak I always thought I can't be that person but then you hear someone say it and it's like hey I don't care who knows I want everyone to know that's empowering to other people
1: Michael had only one rule for our interview, and that was that I could ask anything, including questions about his experience with antidepressants.
2: 20 years ago, I went on medication, uh, and medication helped me. I am one of the lucky ones who is treatment, the opposite of treatment-resistant would be me. So I started on Prozac. uh, it, It helped me didn't cure me it helped me and then eventually i went off prozac because i didn't like the side effects and it came back and then i went on zoloft and uh i again it made me better and i got tired of the side effects so i went off it again thinking okay well maybe i don't need it anymore and i think the brain forgets just how much pain you've experienced like the brain can't remember what pain felt like you can remember thinking oh my god i felt terrible but you can't relive it And there's a big difference between imagining what it felt like and reliving it. So I kept going off it.
1: The last time he went off meds was in 2008. And Michael says he won't do that again.
2: So I kept going off it, and then uh, eventually, the last time uh, I went off it, and I really was in a terrible position. Where uh, I uh, I talk about this, um, you know, November twenty fourth, two thousand and eight, Marriott Hotel, Montreal, room five twenty one, four a.m. in the morning. I was there, sitting on the edge of my bed. I was working in Montreal uh, at a sporting event, and I thought, wow. I know why people take their lives. I was not really a danger to myself because I'd been through it before. But that's how far I had let myself slip, Terry. I had gone so far, so much in denial. And my wife had said, you have to go back on medication. You have to go back on medication. I said, no, I don't. I can do it without medication. So I started taking other medications like, you know, benzodiazepines, you know, Ativan or Valium. And, you know, that's a great substitute until you get addicted and you realize you got to use more and more and more. That was... Twelve years ago now, and I have not been off medication. I've been on uh, 20 milligrams of what you would call Lexapro, mm-hmm. uh, and um, 300 milligrams, uh, 150 twice a day of Wellbutrin um, since then. Yep. So I have, so I have learned my lesson.
1: Still, Michael doesn't attribute that lesson learned
2: to hard-earned wisdom, but rather. Because I, I, I have this fear that I play it out. Okay, I go off the meds and that's great and side effects are gone and I'm feeling pretty good and then I relapse and then I wait too long and then I go back on medication and this time it doesn't work and I'm forced to live the rest of my life with the pain that I have felt in the past and that just scares the crap out of me.
1: Neither we nor Michael advocate for medication. We always say that people either swear by it or swear at the mention of it. Rather, the point of a discussion like this is to challenge people who won't even try them to make sure that it's not stigma or misconceptions influencing that decision.
2: The biggest thing is medication. The people will deny themselves the right. access to medication because they don't believe in it. And they say those words without really knowing what the hell they're saying. They just have heard it before. I don't believe in medication. Really? What don't you believe in? You know, it's not like we're not talking about God here. We're talking about this pill that you take that might 60% chance make you better and give you your life back. Ah, oh, well, I'm worried it's going to change me. And it's like it will change you. Right. But if you're sick enough, first right. of all, you want change. But second of all, the changes that it makes in you that you don't like are worthwhile. And that's why I I have the saying, which is you need to learn to love the thing that you hate the least. You need to learn to love the thing that you hate the least. So I hate my depression more than anything. I hate my medication, too. But I hate it less than I hate the illness. So it's like, do I like being on meds? No. Do I wish I was off meds? Absolutely. But I'd rather be on the meds where I am right now than be back to where I was. So I have learned to love the thing that I hate the least.
1: Interesting. I like that because people do. I hear it all the time and, the time. and they, they don't work for me. They, they numb me out. They'll take away my highs. I would give away my highs. I would give away my yeah. highs to, to not have my lows.
2: You know what? Absolutely. It's a deal with the devil that I I refer to. Uh, I mean, this is the value of sharing, right, is that, you know, people like us that have gone through this uh, a million different times in our own heads, it's played out like for me off medication five times. We have learned so much from that experience that you hope that you can help people uh, and not have them make the same mistakes that we have made because we've all learned by trial and error. And one of the mistakes that you make is that one makes is they take possible treatments off the table.
1: Remember how we started this and last week's episode with the listener question about how to talk to somebody who's really struggling and resisting any treatment or help? The concept of learning to love the thing you hate the least might be a key worth using to try to open the conversational door. It sure resonates with us.
2: You know, Terry, anybody who denies, well, first of all, anybody who denies any form of treatment that has been approved, um, you know, is, is has never experienced depression the way you and I have d- experienced it. Because if you've been down there, you tend to go, Anything, anything, please just help me get out of this spot because I'm not living right now. I'll do anything to get better. And if you can't say I'll do anything to get better, then either you're ridiculously stubborn or maybe you're not as, as sick as, as you and I were.
1: Again, Michael puts that in the lessons learned column. But what about the more elusive realizations? What about do you have things that you know on either side, right? They, they, they help or things that, you know, make it worse, but you just can't seem to remember or access that you've already learned those lessons. You know, what, what, like, what mistakes do you keep making? And I hate to call it a mistake because that sounds judgmental, but.
2: no, oh, I mean, I would be the only one to determine their mistakes. I think my biggest mistake—I uh, don't make nearly as often. I think that we have the ability to take a good day and make it into a bad day, and we do that by fearing the return of the bad day. So it's like, oh, I feel really good today. Oh my gosh, you know, I can sit down and I can I can be creative and I can be the person that I want to be. I'm walking my dog and I come across someone who's walking in the other direction, and I, I would always say hi when I feel good and when I. I don't feel good, I'll try to find a way where I'm not crossing paths with anyone. And similarly, I can take a bad day and make it worse, or at least I could before by saying, okay, well, today's not good. And what happens if tomorrow is even worse? And worse still, what happens if the next day I continue to slide? Oh, my God, am I going back into the hole? Is my medication not, no longer working for me? Am I going to be where I was in room 521 of the Marriott Hotel? Oh, my God. Uh, so I have learned to, to um, prevent myself from making a bad day worse and from making a good day bad. And it's taken me a lot of years to realize that.
1: So the slide. Um, you know, when you just said, you know, it's starting, it's, you have your bad day and, and it can lead into, you know, a full-fledged dip back into that pit. What are your warning signs?
2: Uh, you know, the first warning sign is that my wife asked me if I'm okay. And typically I'll say, you yeah, know, yeah, I'm okay. You know, like even now, like I still deny it the first time I'm asked. Um, for me, the biggest is I stop talking. You know, like which which is pretty obvious when you're a guy who tends to be, you know, the if not the loudest guy in the in the room, a guy who is amongst the loudest, but also amongst the you know people that ask a lot of questions of people. You know, I engage people. So it's it's when I need to either fake who I am, which is incredibly challenging Uh, when I realize that I've lost confidence in myself. That's another sign about the slide. And when I retreat, when I search for ways to get away from people, not be with people, those are all um, pretty obvious markers for me that, um, that I need to deal with this.
1: I know when I hear the phone ring or even a text come in and if my immediate thought is, oh, my God, leave me alone, yep. then I know. Because right, otherwise I'm like, who's that? You know, not always this is the perfect time for a call or a text, but I'm at least somewhat curious or I make a note when I'm not so busy. I'll have to check that. But it's not like, would you leave me alone?
2: Yeah, That's, exactly. That's a it's a great way. You know, you look down and you go, nah, I'm not getting that. You know, it's yeah. like, ah, no, I'm looking at my phone now. I'm going nah. on a bad day. I'm not getting that.
1: When you have those warning signs, what do you do? I mean, you're already taking your meds, so what do you say, like, whoa, 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 you know, I'm getting the tap on the shoulder, I'm feeling the slide, I'm, you know, the light's dimming, I can do A, B, and C, and it might help, does help, has helped in the past?
2: I remind myself of how many times I have been in this position where I've had, you know, some good days and now I'm having a bad day and how it passes now that, you know, I'm on medication. There's no reason to think that it won't pass again this time. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you're on an airplane and there's turbulence because there's turbulence doesn't mean that you're going to crash. Just means that, you know, you've got these bumps that you've got to wait out and you've felt those bumps before. It didn't mean that that we were crashing. I've been uh, living with my brain now for 12 years on the same medication, and I've had bumps before and bad days. It doesn't mean that I'm relapsing. And I think that is about the only thing I can do is to just be patient, to wait it out, uh, to not panic and not assume the worst.
0: you know over and over we talk about it's a word that i really don't like but it's it's destigmatizing and i think michael just totally made a very regular very vulnerable honest shared life experience with us all and that is my definition the 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 living definition of destigmatizing you know it sounds like a you know a medical term or a technical term or you know just cliche or something i really don't like the word it's overused but what michael was just doing is destigmatizing he was talking he was talking to us all about his experience without shame without embarrassment without anything
1: just like yep yep this is this is a part of me just like if we were to talk about you know my morning routine or any other part of his life or our lives Right. One, one thing I really like about uh, the way he approaches the whole topic and the, whole, the lessons uh, is that he is real clear on not peddling false hope. I mean, you don't take a pill or do yoga or go for a walk or anything else. And get better. You know, this is something we, most of us, many of us, have to live with and learn to manage. And one of the things he does, like with a Sharpie, is he marks a bad day on his arm, kind of on the inside of his arm, like it looks like a tattoo. So it'd be the four hashtag, you know, the four lines that are vertical and then the one diagonally that would connect him to make five and some months he's got a lot of them and some few and we happen to have talked December 30th so uh, the end of the month and he had five and so you know he wants to point out that just because you're doing the right things uh, doesn't mean every day is going to be good but on either side of those five marks were 26 days that month that were good and And so you know to to be aware that you can have that bad day or a string of bad days or you know more, as we all know. Um, but it doesn't mean they're all going to be bad. and that's that's where hope comes in, and hope is just
0: absolutely critical. And even the word bad is sort of elusive, right? I mean,, yes. it's a huge yes. spectrum of, yes, it is you know what it, it, it's all bad, but you know it's yes, absolutely, yeah. Thank you, Michael, so much for sharing yourselves
1: with us. And another thank you to Mental Health America of Wisconsin for fully funding us for the past year and a half as we continue this important work.